This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, it's Kara. I'm backstage between interviews at this year's Code Conference, which we'll be bringing to you here on Recode Decode starting Friday. Before we get to this interview with Mehdi Hassan, I want to make sure you're also subscribed to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's where we've just published Peter's onstage interview with YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki. This has been an incredibly hectic and controversial week for YouTube, and Peter did a fantastic job asking Susan the really tough questions. They talked about why Wojcicki doesn't want to screen videos before they go up, the ambiguity of YouTube's rules for video creators, and its relationship with the LGBTQ community. You should go listen to that conversation over on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to hear even more conversations from this year's Code Conference. Hi, this is Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks SoulCycle instructors should just read mean tweets at you, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Mehdi Hassan, a columnist at The Intercept and the host of its weekly podcast, Deconstructed. I followed his work for a while, and we're going back to spend a part of this interview to talk about a podcast I did with Sam Harris back in May, which is how he got here. Um, he said, why don't you have another point of view? And I said, 100%, um, which I think will drive people crazy just the way they did the Sam Harris thing. Mehdi, uh, welcome to Rico Deco. Thanks for having me, Car. So I love your accent, by the way. I know people say that. I'm sure they say that, too. But in any case, um, I'm not trying to charm you. I, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a Brit in the U.S. I'm trying to make you comfortable. Hey, I'm a attack. British journalist in the U.S., and right. I keep getting compared to Piers Morgan, which is always, which is <laughs> always painful. Like I'd, I'd rather get compared to others. But God, that asshole. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about your background. I, I'll get into the Sam Harris thing later. later yeah. But I actually, I did want to actually talk to you because, I, again, you're also someone who has very strong points of view on things, and you, you're a columnist. You do a podcast. Uh, you're very active on Twitter. Talk a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are right now. So uh, I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years now. I was in the UK till 2015. Mm -hmm. I'm British. Mm -hmm. uh, people still ask me, what's the accent? I'm British. Mm -hmm. I moved here in 2015. I worked for a bunch of media organizations in the UK. I was in TV for a while. And then I made the transition into writing and running my mouth. Uh, I always kind of joke that I, I literally have no skills in life apart from running my mouth. So mm -hmm. it's great being a journalist. And I worked for the Huff Post in the UK. I worked for the New Statesman, which is kind of like the British version of the New Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, I did political journalism there. And then just before the 2015 election, I moved out to the US mm -hmm. before the 2015 Why? UK election. So a couple of reasons. One was, uh, I just enjoyed the challenge of doing something different. I was working. My wife is American. That's mm -hmm. the other part of the equation. And you know what they say, happy wife, happy life. Mm -hmm. She did kind of 12 years in the UK. And Americans are of two types. I find they either love 
England? Mm -hmm. Well, they hate it. Mm -hmm. My wife's a bit of a hater. Uh, not of the people, just didn't really like the lifestyle. It was hard for her to transition. Always wanted me to move back to the US. And I said, oh, what is a left-wing mm -hmm. British brown Muslim journalist going to do in the US media environment? Mm -hmm. Where is there a home for me? Mm -hmm. So I dodged it for a while until I went to work for HuffPost. And she said, now you work for an American company, AOL, move. And Ariana was very gracious to consider like, me moving. And then before I could do that, Al Jazeera English offered me an interview show in DC, which was kind of a dream job. Sure. And I thought, I'll go out to the US for a couple of years, follow the Hillary Clinton presidency. It'll be an interesting time. And I arrived here shortly before uh, the guy came down the escalator at Trump Tower to declare his candidacy mm -hmm. and call Mexicans rapists. So you were, <laughs> among other things, so you were, you were here to just do US politics. No, I still do a show. I right. no longer work for Al Jazeera English. I work for The Intercept, but I still do a show for Al Jazeera called Upfront in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. which is a weekly magazine interview show. It's a global right. affairs, everything. But we've done lots of American interviews, which have got mm -hmm. lots of pickup. Um, and so we do everything. It's fun. You, One week we do the Kenyan here. foreign minister. The next week we do a Trump advisor. Right. But initially you were here to cover the U.S. Yeah, initially. What, initially. What did, what, talk about that. Talk about what you were... So I've always been fascinated by American politics. Most British journalists are, uh, especially those of us who are kind of politics junkies. It's very hard not to follow follow what's going on on this side at the Atlantic. And, you know, I was married to an American. I spent a lot of my time here visiting over the decade through the Clinton years, the Obama years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I came here at the end of the Obama era thinking it would just be very, very straightforward. I mean, mm. none of us, well, most of us did not think uh, this buffoon would win. And it's been fascinating because I'm still here, by the way, four years later. I, was, I thought I'd come for two years and, and to my mother's great disappointment, I'm still here. Yeah, it's just taken over my life, mm -hmm. professionally and personally. Right. The Trump era has just dominates my waking and sometimes sleeping moments. Mm -hmm. uh, as a journalist, it's, as you know better than me, it's exhausting mm -hmm. to cover this stuff. It's meant to be exhausting. Uh, uh, no, it's never meant to be like this. I can't no, believe it's any... Meant to be it's meant to exhaust you, but go ahead. I'm gonna on, write on, this, on this level, on yeah. this level, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, as I say, I've just never seen anything like it. And it's, for me, I've kind of thrown myself into it for many reasons. And yeah, everything you, every time you think you want a day off, there's a tweet, there's a, something happens, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it's just, and I, I'm lucky because I have all these platforms. I'm in a very, I shouldn't complain, I'm in a very enviable position where I get to do podcasts, I get to do a TV show, I get to write a column for The Intercept, I get to run my mouth on cable news. So it's fascinating. There's so much to comment on. I always say it's a great time to be a journalist, horrible time to be a human being. I'm also a Muslim immigrant in Trump's America, bringing up two daughters who are British-American dual nationals. Right, so we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that because, so what prompted you to want to do journalism in the first place? So uh, I went to university in the late 90s. I was at Oxford. I did the classic kind of uh, degree that kind of politics junkies do, PPE, which kind of... And with a PPE degree, you either go be a conservative prime minister like David Cameron, or you tend to go work in banking or, you know, management consultancy. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in my final year at Oxford at Christchurch um, and thinking... I don't know what I want to do. Um, friends of mine had already on the kind of track towards various consultancies and yeah, graduate trainee schemes. And uh, my sister is a journalist. We're both great disappointments to our Indian parents. <laughs> my mother's a doctor. My father is an engineer. It's like, you, it's a cliche of South Asian parenting. And neither of their children uh, did science or engineering or medicine. Um, so I thought, look, I'll give this a try. It was either that or law and law seemed quite hard. So I just went to work for ITV News, which is kind of the British version of NBC News as a news desk assistant, and just mm -hmm. kind of the lowly 
you know, the lowest level of the newsroom. I thought mm-hmm. I'd try it out. And it kind of worked for me because literally I'm not trained to do anything else. Although I always wonder, people, I go, you know, as you do, I give talks, I speak to students, university, everyone wants to come and how do you get into the media? And I just mm-hmm. think, I can't give you any advice because mm-hmm. it's so different now. Right, I would 100%. never get a job in the media today. Right. I just got, I've got yes, no skills. Yes, I've would. got no skills. That's not true. I've got no come skills. On. I can't do anything. You I'm a complete skills. Luddite. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't, you know, I've been doing a TV show for 10 years. I have no idea how it's made. You don't need to know how it's made. Do you know how know. a car works to turn it on? and drive it? No. Don't worry about it. I mean, I'm not a great driver. That's a side. All right, that's don't a different drive. issue. All right, so what was the idea of how you want to do it? Because you have a much more, um, just like a lot of journalists in Britain, it's much more, which is the U.S. press has turned that way, become much more advocacy, much more personality-based, mm. much more uh, point of view-based. Yep. Talk a little bit about that. So I, this is interesting. The point of view point is interesting. You guys have cable news mm-hmm. with these kind of every night people kind of shouting at you or giving their opinions at you, some good, some bad. I mean, the, the the weirdness of Fox News will park for a moment. But you have cable news since Reagan got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, do whatever you want on TV. And then you have the very, very, very sober print press. Mm-hmm. Over sober. I mean, some of the headlines in New York Times, you just want to kill yourself. And then we have the kind of reverse, because we have what's called Ofcom in the UK, which regulates broadcast media. So you can't do opinionated programming in the UK. You can't have a Sean Hannity every night on British television. But you do have the British tabloid press in particular, which is equivalent of your cable news, the Daily Mail, of course, which many Americans now know, but also the Sun and the Mirror and the, across the board, very opinionated. The Guardian, a very opinionated progressive, much more progressive in, in its kind of editorializing than sure. the New York Times. So that, that's, that's the kind of obvious start differences. I, for me, the big difference that I felt a lot, um, and, I, and I, I've been pushing this for a while, is culturally, there does seem to be this massive difference whereby, and I, you know, it sounds very patronizing and critical, and I apologize in advance, but American journalists, especially kind of political journalists, White House correspondents, are way more deferential mm-hmm. to people in power. It's really weird because you guys had a revolution to get rid of the Brits, to get rid of monarchy, to get rid of kind of mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And yet, we in the UK, for all our many faults and sins in the British media, and I'm no fan of the British media either, uh, you, know, you wouldn't stand up in the room if Tony Blair or Theresa May or David Cameron comes in. In the White House, the White House press corps stands up if the president makes an appearance. Uh, I've made this point before. You get to keep your titles, which journalists seem fine with. So you have guests coming on. It's Mayor Giuliani, mm-hmm. uh, Governor Romney, uh, Secretary Clinton. Of what? They mm-hmm. have not held those titles for years. Mm-hmm. This weird culture. And the inter- you see that in your Sunday morning interviews. Right. Um, I you would know, agree. They, they're very kind of softballs, friendly, the lack of a follow-up. It's not as disputatious a media culture as you might like to think right. or as American journalists have told themselves. And you, to go back to your earlier question, why did I become a journalist? I like to argue. Mm-hmm. And the British media is definitely a space where you can have a good argument. Now, we've told ourselves in the US, especially in recent years, oh, we're polarized and there's huge... Ad-. But actually, when you scratch the surface, a lot of it is... There's so a lot of consensus and right. a, lot of, a lot of avoiding of the big issues, hmm. a lot of dodging kind of what's in front now, of our face. No, what's interesting is a lot of, uh, you know, when you talk to American journalists, they feel like they've gone too far. I don't think they have. <laughs> I don't think they have at all. The but, editor of the New York Times yeah. this week said uh, he doesn't like using the lie word mm-hmm. because it, he doesn't want to be, look partisan, mm-hmm. which is a bizarre statement to make on many levels. But in particular, in a climate where you have a president who's told more than 10,000 falsehoods, according to the fact-checkers, yeah, that's not partisan. Right. Call a spade a spade. I'm right. someone who in my journalism, whether in the UK or here in the US, has always you know, used the L word if it's appropriate, lie. Use the R word if it's appropriate, racist. Mm-hmm. And, and the American media still dances around both of those. Mm-hmm. Everything is racially tinted, racially charged, raci- mm-hmm. racist. Mm-hmm. They feel they've gone too far. They, you know that. They, yeah. they do. And I've in seen fact, the memos. And in fact, they're, they're on 
you know, for, for, for American journalists, the way they talk on Twitter now, for example, has become, uh, you and I are very forthright and we yeah. say the things we feel like saying, but, uh, so I must be British, but most of them are saying things they never would have said before. Yeah. Right. But, it's, but it's not our choice, as you and I right. discussed. If you're a conservative or a Trump supporter listening to this, you'll say, aha, this shows the liberal bias that we have complained about for years. Yeah. Actually, it doesn't show that. It shows the exact opposite. They're really, you and I know that they're not comfortable at all. The White House press corps would love, would love to get back into an old relationship with the president and mm-hmm. his press secretary. They would love not to be in conflict mm-hmm. with the president and his press secretary. They don't like the fact that they have to fight with Sarah. I remember, to be fair to journalists, defend my trade now, this is not their fault that they're, you know, it's not their fault that the president says mad shit on a daily basis mm-hmm. and that they sometimes feel they have to point that out to their readers. Right. And sometimes CNN has to put on its chyron that this is false. Mm-hmm. Nobody's comfortable with that situation, I would argue, in the US media, including in the liberal media. Right. They don't want that. You saw that when the whole White House press corps debacle, uh, the, the correspondence dinner mm-hmm. uh, happened a couple of years ago when Michelle Wolf, the comedian, called out Sarah Sanders in a very mild way, I would argue. And everything she said has stood the test of time mm-hmm. in relation to Sarah Sanders, who no longer even holds briefings. White House correspondents fell over one another yeah. to defend Sarah Sanders and throw Michelle Wolf under the bus. Yeah. For me, that was a turning, but that was a reminder that these people are not equipped to deal with the era we are now in. Well, talk about the era we are now and how do you look at it now? In some ways, that's... Trump's been good in that regard. It's sort of pulled the pulled the. <laughs> There's a silver lining Some, to every, every now cloud. And then I'm like, you know, it was, I was talking to someone. So it was like, what's a good thing to say, Trump? I said he questions a lot of things that I do think need to be cool. like. Why do we do it that uh, way? Trump's course, a Trump supporter recently asked me an event. Why do you only bash him? Why can't you say something nice about him? Right. And I said, you first. And yeah. she said, he's brought jobs back to the Negroes, which which led <laughs> literally people in the room double take. Um, oh economic anxiety. Uh, I would say, look, every cloud has a silver lining. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes try and remind myself of civil lining. Yeah. One of the silver lining is this. Trump is so polarizing that he's forced kind of liberal, centrist, cautious types to get off the fence and mm-hmm. take a position. For example, an issue I care greatly, uh, the occupation of the West Bank in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel-Palestine in the U.S., never covered properly either in politics or in the media. Mm-hmm. It's forced Democrats who would never dared to have taken kind of openly anti-Israel government positions to really, a combination of Netanyahu and Trump has forced them to move way to the left. I see that in candidates who would never, you'd never imagine them in a previous election cycle to be saying the stuff they're saying. Because Why? Because they feel they have permission to do it now because Trump is so brazenly in the Israeli corner or the Saudi corner. Mm-hmm. So that's helped. When Trump takes a position, he taints it automatically. So mm-hmm. the more positions he takes that I don't like, in a sense, strategically, fine. You know, when he said, when he said in the State of the Union, when he did that whole thing attacking socialism, mm-hmm. I was like, great. Socialism that's or capitalism versus capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, but, I was just on Fox last week. But I was thinking, that's the best thing that's ever happened to American socialists, being attacked by Donald Trump. They probably got a membership spike overnight. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he's useful. But then I have to still remind myself, you know, it's become, we live in an industry with hot takes and contrary takes, and we can all do that. I could write a piece tomorrow and say, here are all the good things that you don't realize that happened because of Trump. Then I have to remind myself, a bunch of kids were left in vans overnight. And I just think, sorry, this is a horrible, horrible moment. Mm-hmm. And we're only getting worse. I Talking of Twitter, I just tweeted recently about, you know, Fox News is laying the groundwork for the shooting of refugees. Refugees every night. We are being told about invaders, invaders. They, they, we, it's only a matter of time. You know, someone just said, just the previous podcast I was talking to, he said where he was talking about machines and how a lot of social media stuff that's going on, and we'll get to that. But one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting was that we're in a horrible relationship with ourselves. And I thought that was actually exactly right. 
we're, we're in horrible with ourselves, not just each other, but with ourselves, which I thought was an interesting point in time. In terms of our consumption of politics, news? Everything. Just everything. <laughs> <laughs> he was like... Just across the board. Across the board. We're in a horrible relationship. I, I, okay, so let, I'd let like me, to let break me, up with I'm myself. Now, I'm now going to flip back and forth. Okay. I'm going to go back to silver lining and say, okay. when you say something like that, which is quite I'm a stark statement. No, no, it's an interesting point. I would say, look, I have to... If I lose hope, then I've got nothing left. I have to remind myself that actually, again, the Silver Line Trump era, I've seen massive activism. I've seen people coming together in ways that I never thought people would come together again. I have to remind myself as a Muslim immigrant that in January 2017, tens of thousands of people went out to airports to <laughs> stop that original version of the Muslim ban. Um, I, you know, uh, a Jewish friend of mine, we always laugh. Trump's a great divider. He's brought Muslims and Jews together. I mean, mm -hmm. no one, in a way that people didn't think possible recently. Right. Where I'm writing joint op-eds with Jew Jewish friends of mine about how the enemy is against us all. We've got a common front. So, yeah, it's horrible, but it has also it's forcing us to reassess ourselves. It's forcing us to think again about issues we never really thought about, that we took for granted. You know, yeah, this psychopath has, you know, blown everything up. So would you then call yourself a journalist or an advocacy journalist? Now, The Intercept is sort of, I think everybody's yeah, an I advocacy think, journalist yeah, in a way. Yeah, this is my problem. It's like, yeah. who Who's not an advocacy journalist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, is a New York Times White House correspondent who's presenting a, not just a view of what the White House says, but a view of how we should cover what the White House says. Is he not advocating a position? Is he not taking a, is he or she not presenting a particular line of thinking? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this whole debate about the view from nowhere, um, I just, I'm, I'm torn on whether, because the Britishness is still in me from the BBC days, I worked at the BBC as well. I'm torn on whether, you know, do we just have everyone just put their biases out on the table and mm -hmm. then move from there? Is it, would that be better? I don't know. The, I'm not, I can't be confident in saying that answer. Sometimes I think it would be preferable if everyone just, we knew where everyone stood. Mm -hmm. Because the people who pretend not to have a view end up, you know, look at, look at liberal, we go back to liberal journalist point. Liberal journalists, the media... I would argue they overcompensate. Mm -hmm. We see that. The conservatives have worked the media refs for years, and we see that in the way that, you know, they bend over backwards towards any kind of implicit conservative criticism. Mm -hmm. they're not, and they, don't give a, they don't give a damn about the left or both. They're they playing mock. us all the time. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. All the time. Uh, all the time. And the left, left criticisms are ignored. Um, mm -hmm. And I see, that, I see that across the board, and I think that's a problem. I don't think there's any easy solution to any of this. I think this whole idea, coming back to your earlier point about people being uncomfortable, they don't like it, I think that is a problem. Mm -hmm. I think, number one, whether you're an advocacy journalist, a neutral journalist, or whatever journalist, your job is to hold truth. Your job is to speak truth to power. Your job is to hold the powerful to account. Your job is to afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted. Cliche after cliche I can come up with. But that is your fundamental job. If you're not doing that, you might as well retire and go do something else, be an accountant. Not that there's anything wrong with being an accountant. But that is fundamental. And in a Trump era, if you're not doing that, then I just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, there, there are kids dying. Right at the board. Oh, Six you're doing the kids, kids dying. Thing. I'm going to do the kids dying. I'm going to do kids dying. There are <laughs> kids dying at the border, and we and we and we flit around. By the way, yes, again, I, I don't want to sound too negative about journalists. In defence of journalists, it is very hard to cover this president who produces 17 new scandals on a daily basis. Yeah. I have to remind you, know, Trump years are like dog years. I have to look at last <laughs> week and say. Was that last week? It feels like it was, it was eons week. ago yes. that Trump said that you ridiculous thing. Or, or that, yeah, exactly. Oh, you forgot Amy Siskin's list, if you go back and look at the chapters and go, wow. Wow, exactly. We're here with Mehdi Hassan. He's a columnist for The Intercept and a host of its weekly podcast, Deconstructed. We're going to take a quick break now. We get back, we're going to talk about podcasting and all kinds of things and about uh, Islamophobia, all kinds of things. We're going to get back. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Mehdi Hassan. He's a columnist at The Intercept and the host of its weekly podcast, Deconstructed. Talk about that for a minute. Tell the listeners. So this is a podcast that. that we set up at The Intercept when I joined them. The uh, Intercept. Explain The Intercept. If you explain The Intercept. I love that. Explain well, no, The but Intercept. Just people might not know it. So The Intercept is a uh, uh, media organization based out of New York. I'm in D.C. in the D.C. Funded Bureau. Funded by Piero Omidia. Funded by Piero Omidia. eBay man. What is he, 40th, 50th, 60th richest He's man in the world? No idea. He's very rich. And he lives he in Hawaii, it, he which does. is kind of cool. He lives in a very um, modest home. I've never been Hawaii. to Hawaii. I need to go to Hawaii. It's on Lovely. my list of places to go it's in the lovely. U.S. The Intercept set itself up. It was mainly known as kind of national security journalism, whistleblowers, leaks. It was set up by Glenn Greenwald, uh, Jeremy Scahill, uh, Laura Portra as a way of kind of getting the Snowden archive out, mm-hmm. you know, building on the, the stories that they broke and the Pulitzer Prize that they later won for it. And I think it then it was it came up with a very specific ethos of adversarial journalism, what we were talking about earlier about mm-hmm. not just sitting on the fence, but calling a spade a spade, calling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, speaking uncomfortable truths, not trying to be popular. And in over the years, it's morphed. And I've joined it, I joined it a couple of years ago, and it's very interesting now because uh, Politico recently did a profile of The Intercept and Ryan Grimm, our DC bureau chief, mm-hmm. about some of the political journalists we bring it. The, the space it's occupied in the Democratic primaries has been fascinating. The Intercept was covering Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez very before anyone me. else had even heard of her. Yeah. My colleagues, Aida Chavez and Ryan Grimm, were out there covering and others uh, well before anyone else. So it's been an interesting space in the political space that's been occupied. I think the Politico sold it as, you know, we're some player in the Democratic Civil War, which I think was slightly overheated. Um, but yeah, we take great interest in what's happening on the left of political journalism. We take great interest in breaking stories. Ryan breaks some great stories. My colleague Alex Emmons been covering the war in Yemen long before it was fashionable for anyone to say, why the hell are we supporting this horrific war in Yemen? So yeah, we've tried to carve out some interesting niches in national security, whistleblowing, uh, democratic party politics, um, uh, foreign policy. And I do this podcast for them called Deconstructed. For me, it was really interesting because I wasn't a big podcast listener. Mm-hmm. When it was pitched to me, I do TV shows. I do a show for Al Jazeera, two shows for Al Jazeera English, which are very serious, heavy interview shows mm-hmm. where I basically grill people. That's what I do. I just kind of, that's what I do. It's a very tough, robust interview format. And uh, for the podcast, I kind of had to change the style. And some people are still disappointed. They're like, well, how come you're not the guy from TV? It's a very different format, as mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking. So I try and have much more of a conversation, less of a kind of bang you over the head or... Uh, score uh, the win. Score the win. Not mm-hmm. that I would ever say that I was trying to score a win on my TV shows. <laughs> 
Um, uh, Eric Prince like may take a, a different match. position. Those are sometimes. Uh, yeah, that was a great interview. That was a, a very interesting. Talk interview. about that one for, for just briefly, and then we'll get back. Eric, I mean, it was a Eric fascinating. Prince is the brother of uh, Betsy DeVos, DeVos, the education uh, secretary. He's he was famous before her, infamous mm-hmm. before because he founded Blackwater, the infamous mercenary company, which very whose employees family. very, well. very wealthy family from Michigan, kind of Christian fundamentalist a company accused of very racist and violent policies, killed a lot of innocent Iraqis in various massacres. He came on my show at the Oxford Union called Head to Head, where we talked, where kind of one an hour we went back and forth. I also managed to pin him down over uh, some lies he told to the House Intelligence Committee. They're now investigating him, seeing if there's a case for to uh, do him for perjury. The question everyone's asked me about that interview is, why did he come on your show? Mm, and I like that he and did. I don't know the answer. I do like I admire anyone who comes on that show because it is a one-hour intense mm-hmm. interview in front of a live audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, you know, a Sunday morning chat show. And I think, uh, you know, I admire him for doing that, but I, I wouldn't have done it if I was him. And I don't mm-hmm. think he quite prepared for the interview or thought knew what was going on. I can't answer why he did it. Maybe, you know, people do it for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But I'm used to doing that format. And then we decided to do a different format, which is the podcast. And it's been great to have comedy because on that format, I never get to have people who I agree with. People will pitch people. Right. And I'll say, but what would the interview be? I'd just be going, right. yes. <laughs> so now on the podcast, I get to have interesting people who I like and agree right. with, whether it's colleagues of mine like Naomi Klein coming on to talk about climate change, uh, whether it's Bernie Sanders coming to talk on a oligarchy or Elizabeth Warren talking about corruption. Um, we've had some Riz Ahmed, who I went to school with, mm-hmm. the actor coming on to talk about Islamophobia and racism and diversity in Hollywood. It's been ha- some great conversations. Mm-hmm. You know better than me. You've had more, yeah. you've yeah. Had more on your but show than I have. One of the ones, that we, we, that, that, that the reason, one of the reasons you're here is because of the conversation I had with Sam Harris yes. about Islam. Obviously, Sam is a very controversial figure around issues around Islam. He's he's made a series of declarations that many people agree with, many people don't agree with. Talk a little bit about that because that's something you do cover a lot. Yeah. So I do cover Islamophobia a lot, although it's kind of like, you know, it's become fashionable these days to talk about, oh, Muslims, the victims. Yeah. They always want to play the victim card. Yeah. And I always say, I can assure you, if I could pick a career plan that didn't involve <laughs> talking about this, I would. Yeah. There is nothing great about uh-huh. the Islamophobia beat, mm-hmm. especially when you're Muslim, right? right, right it's depressing right, right. to cover this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I were talking before about some of the comments. I don't mm-hmm. go below the line. I don't read comments anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, on social media, I have to be careful when I read my timeline. There is mass yeah, you get Islamophobia it. out there. You know, People are losing their minds in a way that, you know, I've been following this since 9-11. And you look at the Pew data. Uh, the Pew, Pew did a study found that there are more anti-Muslim hate crimes today than there were after 9-11. I mean, mm-hmm. it's actually much worse now. Um, and it's got worse. I've seen it get worse in front of my eyes. So it's deeply depressing what's going on in terms of anti-Muslim. I fear for the worst in the future. I think it's only going to get worse before it gets better. I, I, you know, I hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel is a very long and dark tunnel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I cover this stuff. I try and call attention to it, both because it's the right thing to do and obviously for, you self-preservation reasons. But, you know, it's not just Islamophobia. We live in an age of rising Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. In mm-hmm. fact, some of the people doing it are doing both, including, right. I would argue, this president, but also, you know, the men of violence. Mm-hmm. There's no coincidence that the guy who attacked uh, the San Diego synagogue recently bragged about attacking a mosque beforehand. Mm-hmm. The same with the guy in New Zealand. Um, uh, one study by Gallup found that in the US, if you hold significantly prejudiced views towards Jews, you're 32 times more likely to hold significantly prejudiced views against Muslims. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan Friedland and I, my friend, Guardian columnist... I know. We wrote a piece together saying, come on, let's get on the same page. Stop all this crap. The white nationals want to kill us all. If that's Mm -hmm. not going to get us focused, then I don't know what is. But the problem is, while it's easy for liberals to come together and say, aha, 
There is the Nazi, the skinhead. There is uh, the Trump supporter in the MAGA hat. And there is Donald Trump himself saying Islam hates us and all the other nonsense that he says. That's much easier to identify. And since 2017, to be fair, lots of people have now woken up to kind of, oh, Islamophobia is real. Because before 2017, I was involved in people who said it doesn't even exist. It's all a myth. You're just making it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've kind of moved beyond that because it's so brazen and blatant from the most powerful man in the world. But the bigger issue for me, which I try and push politely and reasonably sometimes, sometimes not, is the liberal side of the equation. Because this is it's easy to pin it all on the right and the far right. Right, absolutely. But Islamophobia is both institutionalized and it's kind of, it's a form of kind of... uh, um, an unself-aware cultural bigotry that we all imbibe. And there's even internalized Islamophobia when you talk to scholars. There are Muslims who, you know, have these views about other Muslims because right. they've absorbed so much media coverage and mm-hmm. Hollywood movies and political rhetoric uh, that we can't, we're not immune from it either. Um, so I think that's what I try and challenge a lot. That's where people like Sam Harris pop up on my radar mm-hmm. because, you know, people tell me, oh, he's a liberal. He's a liberal. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not here. He's not a racist. He's not in the Trump mold. He's attacking the Trump. ideas. Yeah. yeah or he said on your show, no, I don't think anyone hates Trump more than I do. It was a very Trumpian statement I thought was quite funny. Um, he says, uh, uh, yeah, loads of people hate Trump more than Sam Harris does. Uh, this idea that he's you know, him and Richard Dawkins um, and others, the quote-unquote new atheists, they are attacking the idea of Islam and no idea should be. And it's just bullshit because if it was that, I really wouldn't care. If you, wouldn't, if you, carry, you call me on the show and say, let's talk about the afterlife, you tell me it's absurd that resurrection, I'll have that conversation all day long. Mm-hmm. You want to talk to me about prophethood, what's the point of profit? Let's talk. Funny, none of these guys ever actually want to talk about the ideas or theology. Mm-hmm. When you break it down, it is about the people. It is about the demographic trends. And not the religion. No, it is. And Sam, and Sam is a classic example of that. On your show, he says, Islam, Islam, Islam. I've confronted him on social media, he's run away, right. with his own quotes. With his quotes, which he always says out of context, with right. all the links and the context of where he said outrageous things about Muslims. About Muslims, not Islam. Things that if Donald Trump said, every liberal would lose their mind. But for some reason, Sam Harris and co. get a pass. That so, for me is a problem. So, yeah. so when he says, you know, Muslim immigrants bring their backwardness to right. Europe. When he says that the left uh, are okay with white women being raped by Muslim immigrants, which is mm-hmm. what he said in 2016. That's an outrageous statement. So what happens then is you become engaged with in this kind of thing is they pull up your quotes oh, yeah. and your quotes. Yeah. Talk about that. Which is funny. So, yeah, in my 20s, and I'm 40 this year, uh, in my 20s, I used to give uh, talks mm-hmm. to Muslim students, Muslim groups. Uh, I have a big mouth. Mm-hmm. I like to run away. People ask me to speak, I speak. And in some of those talks, I said things that I deeply regret, partly because I just phrased it badly. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're just Out running your mouth. <laughs> Not even out of context, just right. phrased badly. Right. I mean, the sum is out of context, definitely. So I'll give you an example. One okay. that Sam Harris uses to try and attack me, which is funny, yeah. because A, I'm saying they were bad and I've disowned them. He refuses to actually say he did anything wrong. So I don't understand how it's an analogy. It's so frustrating. Yeah, so for example, um, one of the, oh, you say non-Muslims are cattle. I give a speech where I quoted a verse of the Quran that people who don't believe in God are unthinking like cattle. It's a metaphor. <laughs> I also said Muslims who follow the crowd, who follow, you know, have a herd instinct are like cattle. That is an out of context because it clipped it. It's only non-Muslim. Sounds like I'm calling them. On the other hand, did I make remarks about um, homosexuality? That Hugely. Mm-hmm. Big time. I was talking about Muslim history and I was quoting Islamic scholars saying all sorts of bad things where all of these, quote unquote, all of these things are put together. Mm-hmm. Right? It's different sins that, you know, you know yes. what classical Islam, classical Christianity, classical Judaism yep. thinks of, 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 yeah, of, of mm-hmm. homosexuality. Now, you know, 10, 15 years later, do I hold it? Of course not. And what's annoying is 
you look at the body of work of my journalism. My journalism is on the record, right? I've, I wrote mm-hmm. a piece recently about Brunei. Thank, it's interesting that I would argue that some of us played a role in helping the ludicrous, odious sultan of Brunei pull back from his absurd death penalty uh, for gay people, for mm-hmm. gay sex. Uh, I wrote a piece for The Intercept saying, this is not Islamic, this is not in my name, this is absurd. Mm-hmm. And I've been saying this for years. I wrote a whole piece about homophobia and how Muslims can tackle it. Because it's not easy. I'm not going to throw Muslims under the bus either. This right. is a, you know, this is a centuries-old doctrines, practices. There are Muslims, I'm on multiple WhatsApp groups where leading Muslims, scholars, actors, I'm grappling with this, especially in the West. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we throw our gay brothers and sisters under the bus when they're the first to stand with us right. against Trumpian bigotry? These conversations are being had. On the other hand, the, the, the text, the scripture is clear that this is a sin. Mm-hmm. So these conversations are ongoing. I'm not a scholar. I don't claim to be an Islamic scholar. I wish it was an easy subject. But did I say things I regret? Of course. My number one issue right now today is not about theology or religion. That's for other people. My issue is we cannot afford to demonize and dehumanize other people. Exactly. That is for That's me the bottom what happens line. when you when you get in this this media. Talk about the media because you the back and forth between you and him is just riveting. It, but it's also. No, no, look, I'm, look, I, I, because that's I, what people do. They I like to be, tab, I like they, to be robust. I like to be robust. Right. I, 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 no one, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend I'm some great, polite, friendly. So, mm-hmm. No, I do mm-hmm. tough journalism. I, right. I call us. You know, I swear, I am tough. I ask right. tough questions. I don't pull the, back. In yeah. the Twitter setting, I'm just using yeah, Twitter. Twitter makes everything worse. Yeah, there's no debate about mean. that. Right. There's no debate. I remember, I remember, I went to see Glenn Greenwald mm-hmm. in Brazil, who and loves it, to use the Twitter. Who loves to use the Twitter? But anyone who knows Glenn will say the same thing that in real life he's very different mm-hmm. to Twitter. Uh, my friend Owen Jones in the UK, who's kind of massive Guardian left wing columnist, is always fighting with people because he's kind of he's one of the only lefties out there defending Corbyn been defending socialism, same issue. Like people meet him and go, wow, you're like the nicest guy, totally different no, to a Twitter persona. But it's, okay, but it's true. I've seen this. So, you know, you meet people and yes, Twitter brings out some of the worst of us, especially mm-hmm. those of us in the middle of fights all the time. Mm-hmm. You're ultra defensive. You know, you're in the middle of taking on 17 different people. Mm-hmm. The 18th says something mildly innocent, was asking about, and you shoot them down. Mm-hmm. And they think, wow, what a you are. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's not what really would happen in real life. Right. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier about, you know, it's much easier to talk about things in person when you have a disagreement with a friend sure, or colleague. Absolutely. Texts, DMs, tweets, WhatsApps, it just doesn't work. Yeah. That said, I'm addicted to Twitter as my, mm-hmm. you know, to my wife's great complaint. I love it as a medium. It suits me. It's where I learn a lot about the world. Do you think it's damaging? I'm going to get you into tech a yeah, little bit. Yeah, hugely here. damaging. So, and what to do about it then? Hugely damaging, but you love it. So, well, like it I say, sounds well, I, like you're like a crack addict. I'm, a, I'm an addict. There's right. no, there's no debate about that. Right. It's literally if I, I, if I'm not, I went on, I went on pilgrimage, mm-hmm. and I wasn't on Twitter for a while. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. People thought I died. They were like, <laughs> I hadn't tweeted for a few days. So yeah, no. It's God was I talked to my wife about my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kids, kids on devices. All I can think is like, don't do what I did. Do as I say and not as I do. Because mm-hmm. no, I think it's too late for me. But well, I think, talk about its impact on politics as co- as covering because you yourself are engaged yeah. in the in the arena such that it so, is you yeah. your dam is so is everybody so yeah. is everybody. Well, is Sam engaged? I'm not sure he's that engaged. He I think he uses it more as kind of a grandee style to Move kind of broadcast. Fine, <laughs> but lots I, of people are like you, for example. After that, mm-hmm. Sam show, John Hannity used to Sam, lot. you after that show with Sam, you engage with a lot of people yeah, in good faith. Yes, I do. I don't think Sam or some others do that. I'm just some other people. I think you to engage in good faith with people criticizing you in good faith. I think mm-hmm. is a great part of Twitter. Yeah. I think Twitter has allowed me to meet people and talk to people both members of the public and like celebrities, mm-hmm. politicians who I never get to meet otherwise. And for that, I will, you know, be gr- cliched, grateful to Twitter. Mm-hmm. Professionally, I genuinely don't think I would be where I am today were it not for okay. social media. So what is the... What but is, it's hugely distracting. doesn't help me in my personal life Not just distracting. What is the impact on politics and then journalism in what itself? Sense? What, I mean, there's so many different... Facets. What do you think it, it creates a twitchy what? hot take 
yes, mentality definitely where you the forget the last thing. Like today, you came today. Yep. You, you were like, I can't believe it. Twi- yeah, what Trump just tweeted. Just yeah. tweeted, but yesterday so it was much. something else. Exactly. That was That's true. And also, also, well, there's a big question. If you take Trump out of the equation, right. he's so outsized and oversized in this whole conversation. He's mm-hmm. so dominant on Twitter in particular. Yeah. If Trump didn't exist... Would it still be the same? Would a president, Hillary Clinton, still? No. No, and I don't think we will. Obviously, Twitter would still be doing things, but I think the way he uh, dominates social media is slightly different, and I think that makes it kind of, he's sui generis in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, for all of us, it's the hot take culture. It's, you know, there are things I used to would have written an op-ed about, Mm -hmm. or I would have written an essay about, Mm -hmm. which I do a Twitter thread on, and Mm -hmm. my editor will say, why didn't you write that as a piece? It's done. It's done. It's already had had a thousand. I can't write it now. I can't self-plagiarize off my tweets. 16 parts. Yes, I did. I did this amazing thread. It's all been shared. Um, so that is a problem. You know, we do do things in, in micro ways. But then again, that also has an advantage. The instant take also helps. Yeah. It helps draw attention to a story. It helps cause yeah. genuine outrage. Yeah. Sometimes you should be outraged. If you're not yeah. outraged right now, what the hell are you doing? Right. So in that sense, it's good. I do think uh, the way that politicians have been able to use it to bypass the media is problematic. Mm-hmm. In one sense, it's democratic because you could talk to your constituents, which is great in theory. But the reality is, especially in the reality of US politics and the right, is it has been used to create this entire infrastructure of... Sorry to point out, AOC is doing the same thing. And, I don't th- and beautifully. I don't, think she's, I don't think she's purveying fake information. Ooh, I don't no, think no, she's no, questioning that, reality. I'm talking about the fact of using it as a propaganda tunnel to basically say, so the New York Times breaks a story about Congressman X being corrupt with copious evidence. Congressman X takes Twitter and says, fake news. You can trust me, New York Times are lying. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have been able to do that 5, 10, 15 years ago. Now, mm-hmm. that genie's out of the bottle. I'm not saying we should put it back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that's a fundamental problem for the those of us who cover politics and want to hold people to account. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump knows that. He says this openly. That I, they hate me because I can bypass all of them and talk directly to my base, which is true. Right. And he misleads them when he does it. And there's no way of checking that. I can't censor him on that, obviously. Right. So, yeah, it's really problematic uh, that we have no, you know, we have no, I, I'm very old-fashioned. This is my age showing. I did like an old time when I was growing up when you had the water cooler moments when everyone so would watch like the it same. To go back. I'm not saying I like <laughs> it to go back because lo- I've just told you the things I love about Twitter. Yeah. But but you know it's complicated. I do miss that sense where everyone mm-hmm. could come together be for reflective. a moment, uh, be reflective, but also have seen the same stuff. Right. I mean, we live in an age where literally 30 percent of the public in this country are not watching or reading what you and I are watching and reading. Mm-hmm. I don't know how democracy survives in that. All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with Mehdi Hassan, who's quite entertaining in many ways. I can see why you're good on Twitter. Uh, He's a columnist at The Intercept and a host of its weekly podcast, uh, Deconstructed. When we get back, we're going to talk about where presidential politics is. There's a lot of stuff going on next week with the debates and, and all sorts of stuff coming up. So I want to talk a little bit about the elections when we get back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey. 
instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back with Mehdi Hassan. He's a columnist at The Intercept and host of its weekly podcast, Deconstructed. Where are we going now, then? Here we are. It's been kind of a disastrous mess. Yeah. Um, it continues not to to correct itself in lots of ways. Oh, the corrections? Uh, no, no, no there, I, the other night I was like, there were four things the Trump administration removed. I was like, what? Like it was, fat, it was sort of like it just doesn't end. And and we we're going into this election with the Democrats sort of all over the place. We've got impeachment hanging over things, or maybe not. Uh, we've got Trump, you know, saying he's won already, essentially. You know, there's questions whether he can. There's polls that say he can't win. Others say he can. I'm kind of worried if he doesn't win, what's going to happen? Yeah, no, that's what I'm most worried about. I've written about that. I don't think he'll leave quietly. No, I don't think he'll accept the result. And I don't think we've prepared for that. Again, to come back to our earlier conversation, I don't think White House correspondents have sat around and touched. How are we going to cover next November? Uh, They don't want to think about it. Even though they all know, we all know. It's like I say that the media coverage of Trump is like the emperor's new clothes. We Mm -hmm. all know it. Mm -hmm. Very few of us are willing to be that child who calls it out. Right. Says, for example, his mental stability. That should be the number one story. Well, a lot of people have written about that. Very. George Conway. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Someone who's you need a right-wing, a right-wing husband right-wing. of a White House aide. Well, conservative. He's Federalist right-wing. society, yeah, that would yeah, argue. Yeah. Right. Like, everything's moved now. If you're not right. a far-right <laughs> no, Nazi, no. Someone, you're right-wing. Uh, someone tr- at a party, someone was like, oh, I love, it was Rick, what's his name? Well, the guy who used to work for McCain. Um, Rick Wilson. Was Wilson. Yeah. And someone else at the party who was a little more left was like, uh, he was never nice to me. It was a person of right. color. Never nice to us and wouldn't be if he no. was back in power again. So why are we liking him? And it's because he's why is, not— Why does George Bush get a hug from Ellen I know. and swap cough drops exactly. with Michelle? Yeah. Right, exactly. Everything's relative, right? right. He's, yeah. Trump is so far right. Yeah, he was made... funny. Someone's like, oh, Reagan's so good. I'm like, no, he was not. I am certain of the people who had AIDS did not think that. I recall because well, I was around. Well, was... Uh, the late, great John Kenneth Galbraith famously said about George W. Bush that he mm-hmm. makes me yearn for Ronald Reagan. And I, I used <laughs> that line in a New York Times open in 2015. And I said, I yearn for George W. Bush. I hated George W. <laughs> I marched in the Iraq war as a young guy. But yeah, I it's look true. at Bush. The, the, the things yeah. have moved. The things, things have moved. moved. Things so, have moved. So talk about what, what's coming. So I think you have to separate out the Democrats. Mm-hmm. There's the presidential race, which is kind of in its own bubble. Mm-hmm. Debate's kicking off. It's starting to get serious. Hopefully we'll whittle down from the kind of 776 candidates who are currently mm-hmm. running. Then there's the House Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, who I've been very critical of. Right. I wrote a piece in November saying she's not, she and Chuck Schumer, let's be fair, not just her. A lot of misogyny only focuses on her. Schumer as well, awful. Probably, well, she controls more awful. the House. She, she controls the House, but in terms of general what, congressional yeah. leadership of the Democrats, they're both not the right leaders for the time we're in. Mm-hmm. I don't think they get the scale of the challenge. We have a white nationalist in the White House, kids dying at the border, and they want to talk about infrastructure week. I find that odd, uh, to say the least. Pelosi on impeachment, unless she changes tack, I think history will judge her very badly. Mm-hmm. I think the arguments against impeachment are ridiculous. All right, go for one. Defend one of them. They, they have all these marginal uh, seats that they have to keep. I think about 46 of them that are, could be in trouble if they focus on impeachment. Where's the evidence that they're going to be in trouble? I'm just saying that. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it. There's a lot of assertions being made. Right. I've not seen evidence for this. So, for example, one of the assertions Pelosi makes, which I find most ridiculous, is he's goading us to impeach him. He wants to be impeached. Mm-hmm. 
no, number one, that's absurd. The most thin-skinned president in US history who wants to be compared to Abraham Lincoln does not want his legacy to be, he's up there with Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton as one of only three yeah, men to be impeached. The, yeah, the, the idea that he's okay. Crowds, isn't he? Yeah, and he's complaining on Fox News in Normandy about Nancy Pelosi saying he should be in prison. The idea that he wants to be impeached is absurd. Anyone who knows anything about his psyche, absurd. But even if that's true, no evidence is offered. It's just stated as fact. I just mm-hmm. don't buy that. Uh, a lot of these statements are made, oh, for example, oh, well, the Senate won't convict. Probably won't convict because Republicans are all profiles and cowardice. But on the other hand, you're going into 2020 Senate elections, which actually they're not, whatever happens, they're not great for the Democrats. It's not a good lineup. Mm-hmm. Why not put Susan Collins and co on the defensive, uh, Gardner on the defensive and say, why did you vote against impeaching a man who's clearly demonstrated to commit high crimes and misdemeanors? Mm-hmm. Why is that bad for the Democrats? This weird kind of self-flagellating, self-loathing, ultra-cautious, always, what about Trump's base? Fuck Trump's base. What about your base? Right? <laughs> this is just, the Democrats, you know, it's been said often enough. I'll say it again. The Democrats bring a knife to a gunfight. The Republicans bring a rocket launcher. That has always been the way it's been. And unfortunately, under Pelosi, yeah, she's great at clapping snarkily at him. But in terms of actually using the strongest power that she has, she said recently that the, his, he's not a well man. He's got you know, problems. She alluded to his insanity. And then she said, I wish his uh, administration, I wish his staff and his family would stage an intervention. Mm -hmm. I wanted to shoot myself in the head. Mm -hmm. You are the House Speaker. You can stage an intervention. Mm -hmm. It's called impeachment. The idea that the fate of the Republic is in the hands of Mike Pence, Ben Carson, Melania Trump, and Baron Trump is absurd. Mm -hmm. right? But that's what she said. And she's supposed to be this political genius. So so what do you expect is going to happen then? I think predictions are a mug's game. Right, right but she, she, but she, she, says, I, she looks the like moment, she's not moving. At the moment, I don't think she's going to move. And knowing what we know about the Democrats, uh, I've talked to some House Democrats who say who are up for it, but they're just like, you don't realize behind the scenes how many people are not up for it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just so want to avoid it and talk about infrastructure week mm-hmm. because they just don't get the time we're in and because they have these weird kind of calculations about elections. There's this idea that public opinion is frozen. The biggest argument is the public doesn't want impeachment. Well, they didn't want impeachment when Nixon was impeached either. Mm-hmm. In fact, the majority of Americans only supported Nixon's impeachment two weeks before he resigned after articles of impeachment were written by the House Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you can't change public opinion, that the job of Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer is not to lead public opinion in a direction, seems but to be a complete never, abdication he, of responsibility. But Nixon was never quite as defensive of himself as Trump is good at. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm not saying it won't be harder. Of right. course it'll be harder. I mean, Carl Bernstein made the point, you know, if we broke Watergate today, it would just be fake news. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't have Fox News in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You didn't have all this social media that we've talked about. No doubt it will be hard. But there's an argument, oh, it will be hard, or oh, it will rile up his base. They're already riled up. Mm-hmm. He just turned them on Ilhan Omar recently before mm-hmm. on Colin Kaepernick. Next, you know, doctors killing babies. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need impeachment to rile up his base. This guy mm-hmm. can produce enough racist, obnoxious, dishonest tropes to rile mm-hmm. them up. So mm-hmm. for me, the arguments are all kind of not really there. The only argument that has any weight is that, oh, he won't be convicted in the Senate and therefore he'll say he was exonerated. I'm not sure I buy that argument. Also, the idea that by not impeaching him, that doesn't have a cost. That he's, you know, Harry Reid came out recently, said former uh, uh, Senate majority under the Democrats. And he said this point. He said, you can't allow him to go into election saying, well, you, I didn't do anything wrong. Democrats didn't impeach me. Right. It works both ways. Right. Not impeaching him has a right. price as well. Right, right. So do you imagine there's ever going to be a shift or not? You think she's not going to shift? I, as, as of this moment, I don't think she's going to shift. I hope to be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, predictions are hard in American politics. No one can predict anything because life is so crazy. Uh, 17 Republicans ran for president in 2016 and the guy from Home Alone 2 won. Mm-hmm. So I stopped making predictions after that. <laughs> Brexit, I'm British. I mean, come on, I didn't see Brexit coming. So two for two failed on both those predictions. Mm-hmm. Even in the Democratic race, I have no, I don't know who's going to win. I ju- it's such a long way away. We're all making Biden's lead in Who the do polls. you like? 
I like two candidates. Mm. I like Elizabeth Warren and I like Bernie Smart Sanders. Yeah. I think they're the people who get the challenges. They're the people who get the fight that needs to be had with the Republicans. They're the people who are actually going to try and transform. It's not enough just to beat Trump. Mm-hmm. You have to beat at least some of the underlying factors that produce Trump. Trump is not the cause. Trump is a symptom. And therefore, to avoid the next Trump, the next Democratic president has to be able to take the fight. And there's certain things I like about Bernie Sanders that Warren doesn't have. There's certain things I like about Elizabeth Warren that Bernie Sanders doesn't have. Mm-hmm. I think the procedural stuff is so important. We've just been talking about it. The idea that you've got to get rid of the Senate filibuster. You've got to abolish the Electoral College. American politics is broken. I say that as an immigrant to your great country, it's batshit crazy mm-hmm. the way you run things, the way that, you know, some of the stuff here. The Americans have no clue. That's my favorite part. They're completely ignorant that other people in the rest of the world don't do things like this. Mm-hmm. You don't, no other Western country allows politicians to draw up the boundaries of their own seats. That doesn't happen anywhere but the United States of America. That's mad. So when you're going into this, to talk about it globally, and then I want to finish up talking about sort of text responsibility yeah. in this, the rest of the world doesn't look so Nope. Perfect either. You've nope. got a mess in Britain with uh, with uh, it looks like Boris Johnson's about to become oh, prime minister. I know, a, a right? Very like, own, a very young Trump, hear, uh, the British Trump. Uh, it was a little smarter, a little uh, smarter. Uh, I mean, uh, oh, low uh, bar, low bar, yeah, low bar. But also mad, kind of mad. Um, you've got and stuff Islamophobic. going on ev- everywhere, yes. everywhere. Yes, it's deeply depressing. Yeah, and that requires a left that is up to the challenge of pushing back against the rise of a far right against fascism. There's an F word that we don't use fascism. Uh, these people are not populist. It gets, annoys me. Bernie Sanders is a populist. Uh, Viktor Orban is a neo-fascist. It's a problem for me. Uh, yeah, uh, again, there's no silver bullet. There's no easy solution to this stuff. A lot of it dates back to the financial crisis. A lot of it dates back to the war on terror and 9-11. Um, it's, it, it requires, a, you know, it requires people like Elizabeth Warren who are willing to take a kind of big picture view of what's going on. It requires people like Bernie Sanders who've been consistently saying the same thing and will write about it in terms of the oligarchy and rising inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, and foreign policy, by the way. One thing that Bernie Sanders has that no one else in the field has is willing to really radically challenge some of the underlying premises about U.S. foreign policy, regime change, this obsession with militarism, the Pentagon budget, that, that needs to change. And actually a lot of Trump supporters even think that needs to change. What is the problem on the left then? Criticize the left. Internally divided, always... Intolerant? Uh, intolerant of what? Uh, well, uh, that's that's been one of the things that, that right just recently around. Yeah, I mean, lots of things. Intolerant in a self-critical way. Yeah, we're all intolerant. I'm intolerant. We're all intolerant in, in terms of. Is there a particular issue with the left being intolerant? No, we live in an age where the president of the United States says neo Nazis are very fine people. The tolerance problem is on the right, and it's all deflection to make it about campus free speech. Because absurd. I mean, the same the same people who obsess over campus free speech say not a word when Viktor Orban is sitting in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. Sorry, take your you know, right. bad faith bullshit somewhere else. Right. Um, yeah. Are there excesses on the left? Of course there are. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. There's excesses everywhere. But that's not the same thing. as In fact, the opposite. The left now, the interesting debate on the left, especially in relation to Bernie and the Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. legacy and Trump is, what do you do about some of these issues about, you know, culture, race, quote unquote, identity politics? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people on the left who think identity politics is bad, who buy into this Trumpian narrative. I think that's absurd. I think we have to have, you know, it's all pedantry. What you call identity politics is people, marginalized communities who didn't have a voice before now have a voice and you don't like that voice. It's uncomfortable. It doesn't fit with your narrative, even on the left, where if you just want to talk about, yeah, I I think too that there's been too much outsourcing. I think too the minimum wage needs to be raised. But that's not enough to deal with Michigan, Pennsylvania. You also have to deal with the fact that a lot of racist people, misogynistic people voted for Trump. And it wasn't about the economy. You have to address that point. Mm -hmm. You can't just park it. And I get politicians can't do that. They can't insult voters. But some of us journalists and commentators... Yeah, and uh, you could argue her her proportion of deplorables was on the low side. But the (laughs) 
I would say that if we don't do it as journalists, commentators, writers, academics, activists, intellectuals, who else is going to do it? Mm -hmm. And that is a global, you used to talk about global problem. It is right. a global problem. Modi, my parents are from India, mm -hmm. Indian Muslims. This is in, explained in India. Is. Narendra Modi is prime minister of India, yes. just re-elected re for a second majority. Uh, right. in, which India is very hard to get a majority. It's normally coalitions. Hugely popular figure, uh, has his roots in a far-right uh, Hindu nationalist organization called the RSS, which was modeled on the Nazis in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. He's the prime minister of India. He oversaw a massacre of Muslims in Gujarat, re-elected. And the economy doing really badly, by the way. Yeah. And I would argue yes. that, again, undermines the whole, this is all about the economy. It's not about the economy. It is about, quote, unquote, identity. Mm -hmm. It depends whose identity. It's about majorities being unsettled by minorities having but rights he's and got, voices. He's going to have a harder He's going to have a harder time. But you know who's going to have a harder time? Muslims and Christians That's in right. India. That's because right. he, he's basically, it's going to be a window into what Trump would be like in a second term. Emboldened, mm -hmm. unleashed. Mm -hmm. recognizing that now institutions can be even more irrelevant than they were before, fake mandates, all of that stuff. Right, and you could also look at uh, Netanyahu in Israel, though. Netanyahu. Now he's got to now have another election. Netanyahu, yeah, because, because Israeli politics is the only place probably more batshit crazy than American <laughs> politics. But yeah, you've got the Netanyahu, you've got the Duterte, you've got the Putin, you've got the Orban, right. you've got the Modi. So I, I want to finish up talking about you have all of these people use social media really effectively. Yes. Every one of them. Yes. In fact, someone was like, oh, the rights against social media. I'm like, why? It's such a gift. Dictators yeah, love it. Huge. It's democracies huge. that want to shut them down. I mean— Which is interesting. It's Sri Lanka that turned it off, not <laughs> India, not Duterte. Yes. It's they. Nobody loves social media like a dictator. That's my feeling. Like, why not? The, it's the, great. The great double-edged sword. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the so Arab Spring. Of, Arab Spring is a classic example yes, of that yes. for me always. Exactly. You know, there you had this built up on Twitter and Facebook and people sharing and organizing rallies in Egypt and Tunisia. Mm -hmm. And yet the same regimes using social media to talk about fake media, to crack down, to identify to dissidents, fake, yeah. to create fake news, but also to arrest people and target people. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now seeing that the Saudis now buying this Israeli surveillance technology to go after people like the late Jamal Khashoggi. Mm -hmm. That's a real problem, obviously, WhatsApp and the role that WhatsApp plays. Don't even get me started on that. The, no, please get me well, started. Well, what, WhatsApp, India, yeah. I don't know how many people are aware of that. Yes, when you try and forward... I've written about a lot, but go ahead. So just, just for me, a lot of people don't realize when I tell them this, that, you know, when you try and forward a message to more than five groups on WhatsApp, you no longer can. Yes, you can't. They turn, they One turn of the main reasons that is what happened in India, right. where it's been used for kind of incite mob violence by politicians yeah. and mobs spreading, quote-unquote, actual fake news. Do you know when that happened? Because I complained a lot about that. Um, they said, look, we did it. Aren't we great? I'm like, no, that you had it before, that you fixed it. You don't get a pat on the head yeah. for not fomenting violence. Yes. That's not a, that's not a good thing. It's, no. It, what took you so friggin' long is my... I know, it's the demand and the supply. And right. the supply is on the social media side. The demand is us. Mm -hmm. This insatiable appetite for this shit. So how do you... How it's much depressing do you blame, as a journalist. How much do you blame the tech companies? And what should happen to, to them? Because right now, obviously this week, YouTube takes extremist content off. A yeah. lot of people are saying that's free speech, you know, but it isn't because yeah. they're not public squares. Um, so, so, so I blame them a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't blame them exclusively. I blame them a lot. You know, when I look at, I'm no expert on this stuff, but when I look at, for example, YouTube, mm -hmm. until a couple of years ago, no, there wasn't really a big flat earth movement. Mm -hmm. And yet one study found, interviewed 30 people who believe in a flat earth. Mm -hmm. And they said, why do you believe in a flat earth? 29 of them said, we saw it in a YouTube video. The 30th said, my kids saw it in a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. And where do they get that? Because we know about the YouTube algorithms. You know better than me about mm -hmm. sending you to the next place. And I'm a Muslim. We talk about radicalization of Muslims. <laughs> 
you know, where are these white nationalists getting radicalized? Absolutely. Some of the videos are crazy, you know, that each video takes you to the next place. I think that's a huge problem that YouTube has not really owned up to. I, I was on a platform with a, with a guy from uh, Google uh, a couple of months ago. They're kind of in denial still about how much still needs to be I don't done. I they're in denial anymore. Well, publicly, uh, <laughs> maybe not privately. And Facebook, we had the recent episode with Nancy Pelosi where the mm -hmm. ridiculous uh, executive came on CNN and tried to pretend that it's nothing to do with us because we're not content yeah, creators. Yeah, not and, a good thing for Monica. And, and, the, and, the joke, and the joke is, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg, if that video had been a Mark Zuckerberg, you know, we could all make a snarky comments about how long would it have stayed up. Mm -hmm. I think we know from all the leaks and the journalism from people like yourself uh, that internally they've known about this for a long time, about mm -hmm. the addictive qualities, about the radicalization properties, about sending people down weird uh, rabbit holes. And they haven't done anything about it. Mm-hmm. Why Until do you think cool. that is? Do you think it will so profit firmly Profit-making monopolistic companies. See, I don't think they don't care. They don't think about it. I don't think they not, not even care. They don't think about it. Never occurs to them. So when Zuckerberg originally after the election poo-pooed the whole we had nothing to do with it, Russia, and then later on came out and said, we did. Okay, fine, I was wrong. What think, happened in the interim period? I think Just he pressure. didn't... I don't want to say didn't know... It's different than didn't know. It's not that you it doesn't even register. On it his didn't brain. register. It's like it, it, there wasn't a problem with it. Like it's unknown, unknown. Someone unknown. said, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, he didn't know. I'm like, no, because if like if you didn't know, but you knew it was bad when it, you when you finally do know, that's different than. Oh, yeah. is that a problem? Yeah. That's where, that's where you are with a lot of them. Well, oh, is that actually a problem? Like, yeah. actually it is and then the PR to gay bash in. people. Yes, it actually is a problem. Like this thing that's going on with YouTube. One right thing now. I would say on the tech front that I feel very strongly about based on our conversation over the last 45 minutes, mm -hmm. this idea of working the refs, mm -hmm. right? Before it was the New York Times, it was CNN. Mm -hmm. Now it is social media companies and they're completely out of their depth when it comes mm -hmm. to politics, mm -hmm. when it comes to dealing with the alt-right, when it comes to dealing with the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. You see that, you know, the way that they've now pressured Facebook that you have this anti-conservative bias your news people have anti-conservative bias. Zuckerberg calls in a bunch of conservative news people yeah. to have a chat. I don't see him doing that with the left. Sorry, it's mm -hmm. overcompensation. Jack Dorsey, classic example of that. Some of the stuff nonsense, you know, going out on Twitter and apologizing to Candace Owens mm -hmm. because one of his, uh, what's it, Twitter moments team called her far right or right wing or whatever it is. Too polite for my view. Absurd. When you have liberals and leftists and people of color being doxxed, harassed, hate mail, death threats, and I don't see Jack Dorsey going on and apologizing them publicly. And again, why did you, why did he go on Sean Hannity? Because it's overcompensation, overcorrection. <gasps> We're liberal West Coast tech people. We must be biased without mm -hmm. real. Therefore, we must kind of count. And the conservatives play them, right. play them for the I unfortunately naive Last fools question. Last question. I always I, I thought you'd be perfect for this question. I'm thinking of doing a call on this. What would happen if Trump was thrown off Twitter or Twitter didn't <sighs> That's such a good question. Isn't it would be a good column? Twitter was like, don't write that column. I'd, no, no, yes, yes, yes. I'd be able to take. I'd be able to do my shave, shower, shit routine and peace in the morning, <laughs> and not log on to at real Donald Trump, which is what I do every morning, like every other journalist in America. <laughs> not yeah, this I'm, I'm torn actually because on the one hand, you know, I see people saying, well, this is a violation when he threatens yeah, war yeah. and violence. They're not taking him off. Yeah, they're not. He's violating their standards. He's he's a special. They're not case. taking him off. They're not taking mm -hmm. him off. But should he be taken? What if they did? Just one morning, Jack Dorsey shaves his beard <laughs> and says, and eats eats a, eats a waffle. Yeah, and says, screw <laughs> and the conservatives. Wait a second, I've Eating. Yeah, screw the concerns. We need to get rid of Trump. I don't care what the concerns about him should be. By the way, there's also a genocide in Myanmar. Um, I would say that Trump would lose his mind. Conservatives lose their mind. Yeah, and tw where Twitter could probably they reverse say it. it. Where no, could the conservatives still be? His people would still be on Twitter. Well, he bans them all. But well, they're all gone. Some of them. They're all gone. Just, Kellyanne. Just, <laughs> there's a purge. But she doesn't have the same Hannity. impact. 
doesn't have the same impact. It's not four million or eight million Still followers. Still not the same. Impact. No, no, but they'd make a noise. And, yeah, and no, but as we've seen, but Cara, as we've like seen, a Horton hears a who noise. But Cara, as we've seen, relatively speaking, the conservatives don't need to have that much impact to get right. bang for their buck right. to right. get the return. It's just interesting. It's just and like, I think no, but on just on the series, like, should he be kicked off? I'm always torn because on the one hand, he's polluting it, he's violating it, he's using it to hate what he did to Ilhan Omar. He could literally get Ilhan Omar killed mm-hmm. when he shared that video in that way, that yes. horrible video. On the, so on those moments, I'm like, this is outrageous. And I, on the other hand. Wouldn't I rather be hearing him say this shit on Twitter and actually get an insight into it? Have you heard enough? I've heard enough, but at least I've got the evidence now for those people who might still be in denial about how completely off his rocker he is, about how racist he is, about how much he wants to be a fascist. That Twitter is a great kind of repository. And by the way, just what would we do with the Trump? Would we lose the Trump archive? Can't lose a Trump archive. There's always a tweet. <laughs> there's been an art installation. There's about always it. a tweet. There is. There's an art installation showing them. It's history. It? No, I it is. Seen. It's I a fascinating d- history. Do you imagine any other future president being able to do this? I think the no, only other fantastic tweeter is, well, besides George Conway, is... Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Cortez. But she's different. She, she can't run for president for two more I elections, I said she sadly. speaks it, the, it natively. She's brilliant. When she did kind she's of... She's a native speaker. He's yeah. a broadcaster. He's a, he's a, he's when a she took out list. Lindsey Graham was astonishing. But the... the I love... Is I just, it going to be good for politics? actually makes me feel good about being on Twitter. Is it going to be good for politics going forward? I hope it is as a tool of social activism. Mm-hmm. That's for me, is the number one reason it can... Uh, someone about on the political left. Uh, Well, in influence. terms of affecting political change and political influence, I hope that's how it can be used. That's how it would be in an ideal world. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that in terms of the future question about presidents... My only, the only thing that keeps me hopeful is that Trump is so unique he's that there is it. no person, not just good at it, but he's so bad at things as mm-hmm. well. He's like, he's so bad at being a fascist mm-hmm. that he can't actually bring in fascism. Incompetence is what has saved us so far from full-blown fascism. And I wonder, no, I wonder what would happen if you got a fascist well, who was not nuts, who didn't say shit about the porn stars he'd slept with and paid them off, who didn't go mad about mad stuff on Twitter, mm-hmm. who didn't go to the D-Day Normandy signing and sign his name at the top of the Paper. A little less Berlusconi. Uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, a little someone more. Uh, who still has the same agenda, but does it with a smile and with less overt racism. I think we'd be in serious trouble because we've seen there's an appetite for it. I had a, a discussion with one of the big companies, one of the founders of one of the big companies, and they were, I said something they didn't like. And I said, I'm worried about someone crazy running your company. That's what I'm worried about, not someone who's really, truly evil. I said, with all the information you have and all the control you have, I'm, that's what I'm worried about. Well, that's never going to happen. I'm like, hmm. Have you seen who's in charge of the NSA? The CIA, yeah, I was the like, Service, literally, I was like, you know, you, it just, it can. I'm not, I, it, it can happen. That's but not he true. Has, he has, and I think what we haven't worked, what we haven't acknowledged globally, collectively, mm-hmm. as a society, is that he's now changed the rules for everything. Absolutely. We just talk about presidents, but you have CEOs, you have media organizations, you have academics. Across the board, it's now, what about the President of the United States? Except others do suffer when they do things on it. Only one person doesn't suffer. It's a really interesting thing. Other when others do tweets or, or, or like the guy that just that hit hit the guy on yeah. the basketball yeah, game. Yeah, like Ted Cruz. Like Ted Cruz can't get. Could, if he was president today, he might have the same Islamophobic, misogynistic, etc. And then he wouldn't be able to get away with yeah, saying the kind of crazy. Or, stuff I was just thinking of the guy Trump's who hit the guy on the basketball yeah. court. Like that guy got trouble because that yes. clip went over and over. Which keeps me hopeful right. that, that some of this will right. end with Trump, but a lot of it won't. No, There's no. a whole generation of young people, young kids. Mm-hmm. You're seeing this in high school. You're seeing the racist attacks. You're seeing the level of bullying going up. There's a whole group of kids being brought up thinking, this is fine. There's also a whole group of kids that are not like that. Exactly. My who's going to win? My kids aren't like that. It's no, interesting. My kids aren't like that, but who's going to win? Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, this has been really We're going to win, Cara. <laughs> we're not winning. We're just going to leave. That's what's going to happen. Anyway, we're just going to be really irritating, and then we'll be old people on it going, eh, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> 
kind of stuff. Like the president. Or I'm just going to disappear. That's my plan. No, don't disappear. I'm going to become a hermit. I don't know if you know that's my plan. In the well, end. Anyway, I appreciate it. You're never going to see me again. Anyway, thank you, <laughs> Maddie, thank for coming you. on the show. And thanks to you all for listening. I really appreciate it. It was born out of uh, a, a, a something else. And I, I really did love this conversation. It was really fun. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Where can they find you? Find at you Maddie R. Hudson. And where else? And I don't know where else. Oh, at the Intercept. Al- 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 Intercept. Al- Al- Deconstructed. Al-, Al Jazeera English. He's all over the place. He's not, well, Just rowing es- the people on street corners. Him. He has a delightful Instagram thing where he shows off fashion. <laughs> 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 I don't have an Instagram account. I'm just a Twitter addict. I'm <laughs> very bad either. on all other social media. My son calls it a performative museum. Um, if you liked this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media Pivot and Land of the Giants, upcoming. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.